Well, in 406 AD, a band of raiders crossed the Irish Sea to plunder and attack a town in western Great Britain. Nine hostages were taken, one of them a 16-year-old boy named Sakat. Sakat became a slave, a slave on Mount Slemish in Northern Ireland. And as a slave, he was a sheep herder in isolation, facing suffering, stripped from his family, fed very little. In that time, as a shepherd and a slave, he turned to prayer. He admits that he learned little growing up in a Christian home, and being a Christian meant little to him until he was a slave. But then in that time, he turned to Christ. I doubt any of us have faced this level of suffering or persecution, enslavement, being taken away from our families. But I'm sure all of us have faced hardship and will face hardship in this life. How do we find a way forward in these places? A bad diagnosis? The death of a loved one? A hard marital relationship, financial strain, broken relationships with family, changes in our culture. Suffering, it can cripple us, can paralyze us, can make us angry or bitter. Many times it's no place for hope or for joy. Today, we're going to see a group that is ravaged by suffering and persecution. But out of this suffering and persecution, a great movement takes form. I'm going to argue today, and I believe the scripture is going to argue today this. Out of suffering, joy can take shape. Out of of suffering, joy can take shape. Let's look together, shall we? Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll get to the latter part a little bit later in the sermon. Let's pay attention to God's word. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women. And committed them to prison. The word of the Lord. You know, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, many sociologists and historians and anthropologists 
they look specifically at this small religious sect in the first century in ancient Middle East. And many have wondered, how did this small sect in just a few hundred years dominate the religion of the Roman world? How did that happen? The book we're studying this winter and this spring documents the early rise of this small sect. As we go through this book, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, it's not always pretty. There's detractors. There's people trying to hijack the movement. There's persecution. There's displacement. There's infighting. But through it all, this movement keeps growing. How is that possible? It's one thing at the beginning of this book. We've already gone through the beginning of the book, chapters 1 through 7, a couple years ago. There was a leader of this movement. His name was Jesus. And he promised these followers that they would receive supernatural power. And he also promised them that their message would go to the ends of the earth. It does beg the question, how did these followers of Jesus grow against all odds? Could it have been because there was actually a supernatural God sustaining it? Could it be because they overcame the obstacles because they followed one that defeated death and actually rose from the dead? Could this message of the Acts of the Apostles and the transformation of the Roman world be because there is a transcendent God? That these people actually followed one that rose from the dead. Here's the thing. These people that become Christians, they start thinking this is how the world is ordered. There is a God that created them and made them, that they've fallen away from him to be redeemed by him. They needed to trust in him, and he showed redemption through this Messiah, Jesus Christ, that rose from the dead. And then being transformed in that, they say, I need to tell others about it. Despite cultural differences, despite the color of their skin, despite their politics, even people that don't believe us, even if they hate us, even if it's difficult, it's true. So we're going to continue to share about this message of the gospel, the good news. As we go through Acts, I hope maybe some of you processing Christianity, maybe you have friends that are processing Christianity, I hope you might invite them to come. As you read this, you might think, what is up with these people? What motivates them to act this way? For you that are Christians and followers of Christ, I'm going to ask you to ask the same questions. 
what is up with these people? Am I motivated in the same way that they are? And if not, why not? Well, verses 1 through 3, we are brought to the epicenter of this message of the gospel. It's been the city of Jerusalem. There is where Christ died and rose from the dead. And the apostles have been hanging out. And what's happened in the first seven chapters is that people have come from all over to Pentecost. And 3,000 people have believed the message of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has come. There's unity of fellowship. All these amazing things have happened in Jerusalem. But interspersed between these amazing things, hard stuff has happened. There's been arrests. There's people using the gospel for selfish gain. There's been division between the Jewish believers and the Hellenists. The Hellenists are those that come from Greek backgrounds that become Jewish. And there's some cultural differences there. We've seen how the church has navigated these things through the power of God. Through the power of the Spirit. And we see they've got overcome many of these cultural differences. One division, they decided because the Hellenists feel like they haven't been cared for, their poor haven't been taken care of, their widows have not been taken care of, that the church has appointed seven deacons to distribute to the poor. One of these deacons, his name is Stephen. And Stephen is preaching the good news. He's seized, he's questioned, they take him to the high priest. The priest asks him about what he believes, and he communicates how this message, this story of the gospel, has played out through Old Testament history to today, through Jesus being the Messiah. People didn't want to hear what he had to say. They took him out of the city and stoned him to death. And that is where we are now. This was not shocking enough for the church. It says that persecution broke out on that day. The Greek word diasporasan, where we get diaspora, is the idea of scattering. So now people in the church have been scattered. Scattered throughout Israel in the northern kingdom and Judea and Samaria. And the apostles stay in Jerusalem, partly probably because they were so highly respected, even by the people in Jerusalem. And the Jewish authorities feared of doing anything to them. But others in the church were dispersed from their homes. It's a very unique word in this passage, too, as we see in verses 1 through 3. The word is lamentation. It's the only time it's used in the book of Acts and seldom ever used in the New Testament. It means to mourn greatly, to beat your breast. This is what these people do at Stephen's death and his burial. It's very interesting. There's actually no provision to have lamentations for someone that's stoned. Stephen was so well respected. People grieved. Even Jews grieved for the death of this man that was respected in the community. 
And then it gets worse. Saul, it says, caused great harm in the church. Dragging men, and it points out women too, from their homes to prison. Again, let's recap what's going on. The leader of this movement, one of the leaders of this movement is stoned. People are cast away from their home in Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea. There is extreme sorrow, even to the point of breaking down and mourning and beating their breasts. An official, a great official among the Jews, goes from home to home arresting men and women. That is what this early movement is facing. There's an interesting thing about suffering. It has a tendency to help us, not, help us not see clearly. We don't see clearly in suffering. We don't always see a way out. The idea of joy or hope is very hard to see in the midst of suffering. Let's take it down to a, a low level like eating tomato sauce when you have a canker sore. You can't enjoy the pizza when you have a canker sore. It's hard to think past that. All you're thinking is the acid that is touching your mouth. If I asked you if you wanted to sign up for suffering, I'm sure many of you would say, no. <laughs> I do not want to sign up for suffering. We have a unique way of dealing with it in American culture. We avoid it at all costs. We run from it. We stuff it. If we could see how we deal with suffering as a culture, just look at the past three years. People are angry. They're upset. They're isolating themselves. It's not something that we are familiar with or deal well with in our culture. There's a problem with dealing with suffering in that way of stuffing or running, avoiding. If we do that, we can end up avoiding others who are hurting. We don't want to deal with their suffering. We don't want them to drag us down. Another problem with this is that we can ignore our own problems. And that can cause problems in our life. It can act out in the ways that maybe are drinking, sexually, different ways of stuffing suffering. It can cause complacency in us. It's very interesting. We're confused with this idea of suffering in our world. At one time, we say to ourselves, suffering is not good. But at the same time, if I want to engage the world at any level, I have to deal with suffering in my own issues. How do we deal with these two things at the same time? That suffering is not good, we don't want to deal with it, but at the same time, we live in this world, if we want to engage it, we have to face suffering. 
I believe this is the beauty of Christianity that holds these things together. You see, Christianity says that suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. God created the world good. The garden was a place where there was not suffering. That we were provided for. That we were in full relationship with God. And then something happened. The fall. So as much as suffering is bad, it's not the way the world was supposed to be made. Because of the fall, we now experience suffering. See, Christianity holds these things together. And we see it most fully seen in the nature of who Christ is himself. Here is God, who has come from heaven, perfect, fully good, fully holy, who could have left us just down here to suffer. But instead of avoiding suffering, he lived among us, engaged us, engaged sinners, took on suffering himself, so that out of it, we could receive hope and joy. Lamentation. Death being dragged to prison, being displaced. How could this group of people see a way out of this? How was there a way forward? I have the same question for you. Wherever you might be in your suffering, not dealing with it, stuffing it, Running from it. Christianity says we understand suffering. Christ gets it. The early church gets it. You're not alone. The question is what will you do with that suffering? Let's look, shall we? Let's look to see the way that the church dealt with this suffering. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What did the scattering do? What did the diaspora do? It didn't shut down the church. Instead, the preaching of the word continued. Think about this guy, Philip. Maybe you don't know much about him. There's earlier explanation about him in Acts 6. Philip and Stephen had this connection. They were both appointed together as deacons. Both Hellenists, probably very, very good friends. 
Their names are mentioned right next to each other in the ordaining of these deacons. And Philip, whether he was there or not, knows that his good friend, his compatriot who has ordained with him to be a deacon, has been stoned to death. And now he's been displaced from his home in Jerusalem to go not just anywhere, but to Samaria. Many times we might overlook how bad of a displacement this is. It's like us having to go to Illinois. Sorry, anyone from Illinois? But this is a thousand years of division between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Right? A thousand years of division. The northern kingdom has been taken over by Assyria, then the Babylonians, then the Persians. Religions have mixed. There's much negative opinion of what people the northern kingdom have become. They've been considered unclean. They've been called half-breeds. The people in the southern kingdom, these Jews, avoid the Samaritans. We see in the Gospels cases of that. And now, Philip is sent there to Samaria. And what does he do? He tells them the good news. He is with them and cares for them. What did Jesus say? What did he say when he left? That this message would go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Could it be that a supernatural God had such Horrible situations happen in Jerusalem so the gospel would go forward even to a place that Jews never wanted to go. Many times we get bogged down in this section about unclean spirits coming out, the lame being healed, people want to know what that means today, all these kind of things. I think it's important to see that these are signs. That the emphasis isn't simply the healing, but what the healing points to. It points to something greater. It points to a kingdom restored. To the new heavens and new earth. To the new garden to the way the world should be, where spirits are cast out, where our bodies are not broken, that we can walk. That is a picture of what heaven will be. The suffering will end. And here, Philip is giving the people a picture of the kingdom, a picture that there would be no more suffering. It's also a unique word in this passage in the second part. The word joy. So there was much joy in that city. It's the first time it's used in the book of Acts. And again, these two unique words are so close to each other. Lamentation and joy. 
what the heck? How can these be in the same passage? How can there be mourning and suffering and beating of your breast and at the same time there can be joy? The reason these two can come together is because the church is formed by a people united with Christ. One that was killed but rose from the dead. From lamentation to joy. That out of his suffering, joy could be shaped. These people in the church lived in union with that message. It lived in their heart that even in suffering, that there can be resurrection life. That you can have lamentation at one moment, in joy in the next. That out of suffering, joy can take shape. Sakat was enslaved for six years in Northern Ireland. One night he had a dream. The dream was to run away, go east, and you will find a ship that will return you back to Britain. He traveled hundreds of miles, made it to the ship. It traveled and it took him back to his family. There was a great unification with his family. They were glad he came back from six years of enslavement with the Irish. But then he started having dreams. Dreams of Irish people calling out to him, we beg you, come, walk among us. Sakat, who learned how to speak the Celtic language, received further training in the gospel and became a deacon. And he was given a new name, the name Patrick. Patrick returned to Ireland as much as his family told him, no, why would you go back to a people that enslaved you? He said, because God had called him. He knew the language and he started preaching the gospel to the Irish. Druid priests, chieftain, aristocrats, thousands came to faith and the gospel spread through Ireland because of this Patrick. He died March 17th, 461. It's got to be an act of God for a Brit to be celebrated by the Irish. That the day that we remember the Irish here in America in celebrating St. Patrick is actually celebrating a Brit. Could there be? Could there be a supernatural God? 
that has sustained his church through history, that works in this world? Could it be true? What motivated Philip? Kicked out of his home. His friend being killed. To help a people that he used to despise. What could motivate a British teenager enslaved and suffered in the hillsides of Ireland to return back to those people that enslaved him to tell him the good news? You see, they were united. They were united to one who left heaven, who suffered and died and gave his life for his enemies. How should we? How should we act? When we throw up our hands and say, oh man, the culture is going against what we want. A family member is pushing back from me or I'm alienated from them. I'm suffering from my own pains from a broken world. How can we keep going in these situations? Because we are united to one who conquered these things. That in suffering, we can still engage, still love, still serve. Out of suffering, joy can take shape. What if it was true? What if it was a true that there is a God that can transform your bitterness, your suffering, your lament, your pain into joy? Do, I mean, do you really think about it? When you take communion, or has it just become rote to you? What you're doing. We are celebrating his blood, his flesh, his suffering. We're, what did I say? We are celebrating his suffering. That we actually call it a feast, a meal, a celebration. Out of suffering, joy takes shape. He's actually told you to be united to it, to be united to his suffering that we might participate in his joy. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you don't believe this. Maybe you're asking the question, really, is it, is it really true? Did this really happen? 
Maybe you just don't even think about it. Maybe it's just like, whatever. <laughs> I could care less. If it is true, it should change everything about you. The truth is, some of us Christians, we've come to that place as like, oh, whatever. If it's true, it should change everything about you. It should cause you to engage your neighbor. To love even when it's hard. To go out even if it's going to be a sacrifice for you. It should change everything. 